0: So now I invite you to stand for a reading of God's word. Gitanjali is going to lead us in that and pray for us.
1: I am reminded that you have a Bible or maybe writing places, page nine seventy-six. Our readings comes today from the Book of Ephesians, chapter one, verse fifteen to twenty-three. For this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened and you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand? in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray while we are standing. I'm so sorry to keep you long. As an Anglican priest, that's what we do always when we read and pray. (laughs) Can we pray? Everlasting Father, King of glory, through you, whom you have sent us, your Son Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, so that we may know your immeasurable love, the unbroken covenant that you have entered with us with the blood of your Son Jesus Christ. Today we are all standing here from all walks of life, from all nations, Lord. You called us together to worship you in this place, even to hear your word, Father. As Paul prayed for us this morning, I repeatedly pray, Father, that you increase the love and the faith in you towards not only on us, but also to those who are in faith. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that the eyes of our the spiritual eyes of our heart and mind and soul, we pray that we'll be lightened by the gospel truths, Lord, that we may walk in the spirit of truth. As we come together to hear your word, your divine word, Father, Lord, we pray, Father, the words of your, our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, Lord, that you may go before us and watch over us. As we come together, we do not only pray for those who are here and don't know you, Father. We also pray for those who are unchurched, far away from your truths, far away from your kingdom. They will be called and calm and be gathered and surrounded by the throne of your grace to worship you, to glorify you, to adore you. Father, may you send your spirit in our midst, Lord. I pray for my brother as he comes and delivers the word of the Lord. May you give him strength and encouragement. And, Father, I pray that may you enlighten them with the word of your truth, Father. Fill him by your anointing. Fill him by your spirit. And we pray that you scatter every forces of demon that surround us in the name of Jesus Christ. Declare your truth in us. This is my prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: Brother, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kitachu. If you want to just stay up here and preach, you can. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll trade with you. Thank you so much. I'm blessed by your, your faith and your prayers for us. I really encourage each of you, if you have a minute or are just hungry and want some Jimmy Johns, to stick around uh, after the service and hear and join us for, for our, some more time with Kitachu. Well, as a young uh, Christian who was passionate about music, It probably isn't surprising that I latched on quickly to the Christian alternative rock scene that began to develop in the late 1990s and early 2000s as I was kind of coming of age. Uh, At that time, Musicians who claimed faith in Jesus emerged in places like Seattle and Portland, California, many places that were becoming post-Christian, and they found their creative voice in the world of indie rock music, which was a big deal for people like me uh, who enjoyed that genre and also enjoyed seeing professing Christians writing awesome music and engaging that culture with their faith. And one such band that was particularly influential for me uh, is a band called Pedro the Lion. Is anyone familiar with Pedro the Lion? More people than First Service, very excited about that. I think there was one guy at First Service who was like, yeah, I've heard of them. Pedro the Lion, uh, their front man, his name is David Bazan. Uh, He wrote the kind of provocative lyrics and edgy music and sang with the kind of crooning vocals that appealed uh, to my adolescent angst. And I had a lot of adolescent angst, so it really appealed to me. And while it's sad but not that surprising that the band, Page of the Lion, eventually dissolved, what startled many who followed their music, many of their most ardent fans, was Bazan's approach to his first solo album, which he called Curse Your Branches. The album itself was strong musically and and lyrically, but what people noticed was that the tone of the album clearly reflected a shift in his thinking and his faith in his worldview, something that he began discussing openly with the media around that time, that there was a shift in his worldview. The first song on the album is essentially an unraveling of the creation story in Genesis 1 and kind of his declaration that he's leaving behind the beliefs that he once held. Listen to a few of these lyrics. He says, wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all of this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree? And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die and why it's hard to be a decent human being. Later on, he says, I swung my tassel to the left side of my cap, knowing after graduation there would be no going back, and no congratulations from my faithful family, some of who are already fasting, So intercede for me, because it's hard to be a decent human being. I mean, the pure like edge and angst and sarcasm and questions are just dripping off of those lyrics, and they're given voice and feeling in the way that only music can give voice and feeling to ideas like that. And that same tone resounds throughout the rest of the album with this graduation metaphor being his image that he's leaving behind, the faith that he once held dear. Another one of my absolute favorite musicians has been on a somewhat similar journey even more recently. His name is Dustin Kinchuru, and he's the lead singer for a band called Thrice. Any Thrice people in here? Fewer. Okay, less service. It was reversed. Very fascinating uh, to do. I should do a study or something on our musical interests. Um, really interesting. This band called Thrice, one of the most absolute significant bands in my life to this day. Um, their music moved me and still moves me because it had so much just raw emotion and this grungy metal sound and these profound lyrics about life and faith. I love their music. And Kinshu also served in a worship band in a church in Seattle where he wrote some of the most incredibly theologically rich and beautiful worship songs that have come out in the last decade. But when his church fell apart, due due to the devastating abuse of spiritual leaders, his trauma led him on a journey of rethinking and dismantling the beliefs that he once held about God, about Scripture, about the world, led him on a journey of exploring new perspectives and ideas. Similar to David Bazan on Thrice's most recent album, the first song reflects this journey in Kintru's life. Notice as I read these lyrics some of the similarities to the lyrics that we just read. He says, my first and foremost memory is staring up in wonder at the wall. It circumscribed the city and they said that nothing beyond it dwelt at all. But I came to wonder if the stories all were true. So one night I made my mind up. I resolved that I would find a passage through. And I don't know the way, but I know that I belong out here on this journey that I never thought I'd make, setting out across a new frontier, a new horizon with each eager step I take. Beyond lyrics that could seem inspirational in some ways is the truth that what he's expressing is a journey of leaving behind a faith that had put up walls, and going out on a journey where he doesn't know where he's going, all he knows is that he's abandoning what was and the faith that he once believed. Both of these artists are on a journey that they have called in their own lives and that we would call a journey of deconstruction, of deconstructing their faith. Now, if you were with us last week, we said that to deconstruct, in other words, to question, to doubt, to discern, to examine, even to dismantle wrong ideas, That you have accepted, or traditions that were handed down to you, that whole journey isn't an inherently bad thing. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you if you're in a season where you're really wrestling with what you believe. Jesus himself left ample space for people to ask questions and express doubts, and he was with them in those moments. But instead, we, we framed kind of the spiritual journey as kind of a natural journey of progression that, that all of us go on, whatever our background, that goes through three stages. We said stage one is construction, uh, where you're handed kind of the building blocks to build something, and then stage two is deconstruction, where you, you kind of question and discern and poke and prod those things, and then there's stage three of reconstruction, where you begin to build something better. And we said last week that we live in a world that has a lot of construction, a lot of both conservative and progressive ideals that are unquestionable, that are kind of black and white. We live in a world with a lot of that, and we live in a world with a lot of stage two of deconstruction, where people are kind of living, as Kinshu expressed, living saying, I I don't know where I'm going, but I belong out here in the desert of deconstruction. I'm going to stay there stuck in a rut of question and doubting. We have a lot of both of those, but we have in a world with very little reconstruction. Here's what we mean by that. It's become increasingly popular for uh, mediocre sports teams to go through a phase where they say they are rebuilding, right? Have you ever heard a team say that we're in a rebuilding phase? The Royals have been saying that for a while now. (laughs) When a team is rebuilding, what they do, in theory, is that they hold on to a few key pieces— but then they trade away most of their valuable assets, right? And they do that so that they can free up cap space to spend. They stockpile draft picks so that they can start fresh with new talent. I have my own mediocre sports team I love. They're called the Phoenix Suns. They're very mediocre. And they recently went through this stretch of of rebuilding. If you've ever had a team that reaches that point where they say they're rebuilding, what you hope for as a fan is that they have a plan, right? You hope they have a plan, that when they start getting rid of those good players you loved and dismantling the team, you better hope that they have a plan to build something better down the road. You better hope that they keep at least one star player to build around, like Devin Booker. You better hope they make good decisions with their top draft picks, like, I don't know, drafting Luka Doncic number one overall, just as an example. I'm not still bitter, but I'm kind of still bitter. In other words, they can say, trust the process like Joel Embiid, all they want. But for it to really be a season of rebuilding and not just a holding pattern, you hope that they are constructing the team on a solid foundation and have a plan to build something better in the future. And that's kind of the idea behind this series that we're walking through that we're calling Reconstructing Faith. So far, we've made a case that, that goes like this, that the crisis in our world today is not deconstruction itself, but that people are deconstructing without reconstructing. That instead of just leaving behind their wrong beliefs, we leave behind faith altogether. Where we dismantle but we never rebuild to something better. And to guide us in this this series of rebuilding, we're walking through the book of Ephesians, which is a letter that was written to a church in Ephesus, what is today modern-day Turkey, and it was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul helped start the church. You can read accounts of that uh, in... Paul helped start the church, and then eventually he handed over his leadership to his protege, who's named Timothy, and then he went on his, his own way, and eventually he ended up in prison for his faith. And it's likely that from his damp prison cell... Paul penned the beautiful words that you heard Gitachu read for us. And what we have to understand as we walk through this letter of Ephesians is that Paul was in a somewhat similar boat, actually, to people like David Bazan and Dustin Kintry. He knew the journey of deconstruction well. He experienced all three stages of that journey. Because like many in the years after Jesus died, Paul had constructed a framework A theological belief that went something like this. Jesus could never be the Messiah. You heard Gittachu share of people who believe Jesus can't be the Messiah. Paul believed God could never send a king who died. No category in his mind for a king who could die. It contradicts everything he knew about how to read scriptures and about his culture and the traditions. That's what he had constructed, and because he had constructed that framework, many of you know who know his story, that he persecuted and killed Christians, because he constructed that worldview. But then there's this moment where his deconstruction begins. You might know the story. He's walking along Damascus Road, and he has this remarkable encounter with the risen Jesus. He says, why are you persecuting me? And everything changes for Paul from that moment on. But it doesn't exactly change at once, right? If you know the story, you know that he was kind of blind from three days from from his vision, and so that's a lot of time when you can't see. It's a lot of time to think and rethink the stuff you've thought, to question things. So he did a little deconstructing, and he left behind the faith of his past and began to read the Scriptures differently. He began to see things in there that he never saw before that pointed to the idea that, yes, in fact, Jesus can be the Messiah. And then he starts to reconstruct his faith. He doesn't do that by abandoning his Jewish heritage entirely, but he keeps the good while reinterpreting the rest in light of Jesus. And he shifts dramatically from thinking Jesus can't be the Messiah to believing that God's entire strategy for redemption in the world is through the Messiah Jesus. Isn't that such a radical transformation of belief? And when he writes to the Ephesians... He begins the letter with this foundation for his reconstruction process. Last week, we looked at those first few verses, and what we saw was that reconstructing faith for Paul and for us has to begin and end in Christ. It has to begin and end in Christ. Because for Paul, anything that doesn't include Jesus is a distorted gospel. Anything that doesn't include Jesus is a distorted gospel, so we have to build the foundation of our faith on Christ, if we're going to begin rebuilding something sturdy or continue building on something solid in our lives, we have to start with Jesus and the better identity, the broader family, and the beautiful story that we have in him when we're united to him. That's what we looked at last week. That's the foundation for reconstruction. And this week, Paul continues with the prayer for the people at the church in Ephesus. He prays over them in the verses that we heard Gitachi read. And who who heard him read could not hear the, the magnificence and the compelling and beautifully written nature of that prayer. It's so remarkable. Whenever I'm in a season where I feel spiritually dry, I often return to the prayers of Paul because they're so rich and encouraging. And this is no different. Here's how he introduces the prayer in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. I invite you to join me in reading there. He says, For this reason, because I have heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Besides Paul's encouraging commitment to pray regularly for other people, what I want us to notice is that everything that Paul prays here is based on two things. First, everything he prays is based on all of the blessings that he praised God for in the first 18 verses. He starts off by saying, for this reason, because of all this stuff God has done for us, I, I pray these things for you. That's the first thing his prayer is based on. The second reality his prayer is based on is they already budding faith. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. In other words, I've heard great things about where your faith is. I've heard great things about the way you love other people. Somehow that's made it back to me in my prison cell. Think about that. So it's clear that their faith is already being constructed in a solid way. And because of that, Paul is going to pray that God would build on that foundation. Here's how he prays. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe Amen. This prayer is another uh, long run on sentence. It's all one sentence, just like last week, continuing our theory that Paul would have failed freshman English, um, or it probably would be called freshman Greek. So he failed freshman Greek. (laughs) And if we spent time in the first sentence last week unpacking the foundational realities for reconstructing faith, this week, Paul's prayer, I think, reveals to us two important postures that we need to embody if we are going to rebuild our faith well. Two important postures, and then he's gonna give us one next step on that journey of reconstructing faith. So two important postures that we need to assume if we're going to rebuild, and one next step. Here's the first posture. First posture we see in his prayer is what we could call humble curiosity. Humble curiosity. At the heart of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is the hope that they would grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He asked that God would enlighten their hearts. And just pause for a moment. This is remarkable, considering that Paul has already praised their faith, right? He's already said, I've heard great things about your faith. I've heard great things about the way you love people. Your faith is in a good place. And now because of that, he says, I pray that you would know more. Understand even more than you already do. What I want us to notice this morning is the incredible humility that permeates this prayer. Paul has no category for a faith that has arrived at complete understanding. He has no category for a faith that already knows everything. Some of us need to be reminded of that. He has no category for a faith that has arrived at completely understanding and knowing everything there is to know. Instead, probably because of his own personal journey, he pleads that God would build on their faith by showing them more, by helping them understand more deeply the things they already partially believe that he would enlighten them in ways that they are maybe misunderstanding or misbelieving or misthinking. And this is important for our conversation around reconstructing as a church, because it reminds us that we don't have to have everything figured out first in order to begin reconstructing faith. We don't have to have everything figured out first. Instead, we can adopt a posture that the early church father Anselm called faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding, where we begin to rebuild our faith and embark on a questioning search for deeper understanding. In other words, we become curious about our life and our faith. How often do you let yourself just become curious, like a child is curious about faith, about life, And it's a good thing to be curious like that because God meets us in our posture of curiosity. Martin Schleski is a German violin maker and theologian which is just an awesome combination of things to be. (laughs) And he wrote a book that I highly recommend called The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. And it's a way that he goes about reflecting on the way that faith is constructed through the lens of the way a violin is constructed. It's really, really fascinating. But he makes this comment in the book that has stuck with me ever since. Here's what he says. Simple religious correctness cannot nourish our inner world. Let me read that again. Simple religious correctness cannot nourish our inner world. A truly relevant faith involves a loving search and a searching love. And he says this, I think this is so profound. We show what we believe, not by what our mouths say, but by what our hearts seek. We show what we believe, not by what our mouths say, but what our hearts seek. Over and over again in scripture, in places like the prophet Jeremiah, we see the idea that God meets those who seek him, not those who have it figured out or put together. God meets those who seek him. And we reveal our belief by what our hearts seek more than by what our mouths say, because we can say one thing. We can say that Jesus is Lord with our mouths and live lives that don't have him as our Lord. Jesus will say, you, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's possible to say the right things and be religiously correct in our thinking and not have lives that seek or are dependent on Jesus. And often that gets in the way of having a posture of humble curiosity. So what are you seeking? What are you longing for? What are you curious about? What are you asking God for this morning? Are you humbly searching for deeper understanding and knowledge? See, we can naturally resist this posture of being humble and curious. In a couple of ways that really hinder the rebuilding of our faith. One way that we can resist this is by pridefully thinking or pretending that we have it all figured out. By thinking that our take on the world, our take on God, our take on the Bible is indisputably right. We know the right way to think, and nothing and no one can change our mind. It's pridefully thinking we have it all figured out. Now, what happens when we assume that posture? Two things. When we assume that posture, we restrict our own capacity for growth and we restrict the process of other people's growth in faith because we leave no room when we think we have everything figured out for deeper understanding in ourselves. And we shut others down who are just genuinely curious and asking good questions. We restrict our own capacity and others' capacity for growth in faith when we avoid a posture of humble curiosity. And what often where that that road leads, eventually in the end, is that we either become rigid and inflexible, or we abandon faith altogether because we had the right way of thinking and then someone poked a hole in it so we run away completely. That's one way. Here's another way we can resist this posture of humble curiosity. By pridefully thinking that all knowledge and answers are found within us. That if we just look deep enough within, and this is a cultural narrative of our day, if you just look deep enough within yourself, you have the keys to true understanding and enlightenment. You just have to find it. You just have to throw off everything that's that's placing itself upon you. Now what happens when we assume that posture? we completely cut ourselves off from the wise counsel of people who live around us and people who came before us. We believe the narrative that our culture today knows better than all cultures that came before us. That's true enlightenment. That any tradition or history that we hang on to is regressive and needs to be de- deconstructed. What we also do when we think that all knowledge is found within as we cut ourselves off from the source of all wisdom and understanding, who Paul calls the Spirit of God. Paul prays specifically that the Spirit would give us wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And part of his humility in praying that is recognizing that that kind of enlightenment can only come from outside of us. It can't be found within. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the Spirit knows the mind of God better than anyone else. And in Romans eight, Paul says that the spirit knows our hearts better than anyone else. He knows God better than anyone and us better than anyone. So he's uniquely equipped to give us more understanding when we asked for it. When we adopt this posture of humble curiosity, we resist the temptation to think that we know everything about God, ourselves, and the world. We also refuse to submit to what G.K. Chesterton calls the arrogant oligarchy of those who just happen to be walking around. Instead, we cast aside our pride, and we seek help and understanding from God and others. We lovingly search for insight and guidance as we searchingly love Jesus. That's humble curiosity. Here's the second posture for for reconstructing faith. It's what we could call humble confidence. So you have humble curiosity, and then you have humble confidence. See, the majority of Paul's prayer is actually spent on what it is he wants them to to know and understand more deeply. Specifically, he says he wants them to understand the hope and the inheritance and the power that God makes available to them in Jesus. And power is the thing that Paul spends most of his time on in this prayer. He concludes the prayer with this brilliant depiction of this power, the same power, he says, that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, the same power that God used when he seated Jesus at his right hand. He says it's the same power that gave Jesus authority over all things. And that power, Paul says, is the same power that God directs toward us who believe. It's the same power, Paul says, that God makes available to us today. And it's dependent on this idea of Jesus' authority over all things. He calls Jesus the name above all names. What we have to understand is that the people in Ephesus came from a background of pagan religion that believed if you named something, if you said something's name, it gave you control over that Thing, or you had power over something if you could just say its name. It's kind of like this, the idea in uh, the Harry Potter series, where Dumbledore insists on calling him Voldemort, not he who must not be named. And here's the reasoning he gives. He says, him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. If you can name it, you have some power over it. So when Paul says that Jesus is the name above all names, He's placing an emphasis on Jesus as the authority over every other authority in the world. That he is the name that names everything else and has control and power over it. The ultimate name. That his power is stronger than any other power or evil and darkness in the world, which should be good news to us who deal with evil and darkness in our world. It's all about his authority. Now we tend, in our Western culture especially, to be skeptical of authority. Because we've seen people in authority abuse their power to propagate corruption or injustice. In fact, for many of us, this might be one reason that we're in a process of deconstructing our faith, is because of the abuse of power of someone else. But what if our dismissal of all authority causes us to miss a really important aspect of who Jesus is? What if we forget that Jesus used his power and authority not to domineer, but to serve? What if we forget that his path to authority was not dominance, but the cross, death, losing? What if it's actually good news that Jesus is actively exercising his reign on earth? Directing his resurrection power toward us and against the powers of darkness and oppression. What if that's good news? Do you see Jesus like that? Do we as a church, do I have confidence in his absolute authority over our lives and world? See because of their background, many scholars note that the people in Ephesus had no sense of hope or confidence about their future. Because of the superstitious nature of their religion, they had no confidence about what the future was going to look like. And as they were reconstructing faith, it was actually welcome news to them to hear of Jesus' authority because it gave them assurance for the first time in their lives. Because their future was secure by the resurrection of Jesus. See, Paul's prayer is not merely that they would have more abstract beliefs or true ideas about Jesus, but that the reality of Jesus' victory would give them a ground-level confidence in who Jesus is. It's an idea of knowledge that is not just intellectual, but personal and experiential. He's asking that they would know God himself more deeply and intimately. That they would actually not just know about or hear about, but experience His power in the deepest recesses of their souls and bodies, not just their head. He's asking that those blessings of God that he celebrated at the beginning of chapter one would be impressed deeply on their hearts so that it would become this settled conviction that gave them confidence. But not confidence that would be wielded arrogantly over others like some of us are in the habit of doing but a confidence that would be sought and experienced with deep humility and childlike wonder. If we pair this posture of humble curiosity for deeper understanding with humble confidence in God's power in and over our lives, I think we'll be well on our way to reconstructing a faith that is beautiful and vibrant. So in light of Paul's prayer, the next step and assuming this kind of posture on our spiritual journey is clear. Ask for more. Ask for more. That's the next step on the journey of reconstructing faith. I want you to reflect a minute. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, are you asking God to reveal more of who he is or are you trying to figure it out on your own and fit him in? Are you asking God to reveal himself to you? Or are you trying to figure it out on your own? When you read scripture, are you asking him to show you what he's saying? Or are you just coming from an approach that's just looking for cracks? What would it look like if you sought God more regularly in prayer and asked him to give you a deeper understanding? in humility, saying, I don't understand you. If you asked him to give you a deeper intimacy with him, if you asked for a a greater experience of his power in your life, what if we prayed like that? And what if we prayed like that consistently over others, the way Paul models for us here? And what if, what if, we had a confident expectation that God would meet us when we asked for more? What if we expected God? I've noticed in my own life that the way that I pray often reveals how I, how I view who God is and how I view the way he works in the world. It reveals my sense of his authority and power. Often my, my prayers are timid and weak and they reflect to me that I don't have great belief that he will meet me. What if we prayed with that kind of confidence? If you want to continue your journey of reconstructing faith, this journey that begins and ends in Jesus, ask for more. Ask for more for yourself. Ask for more for your friends. Ask for more for your family. Ask for more for those who are sitting in the pews next to you, even if you don't know their name. Ask for more. It's easy, especially when we have friends or family members, who are deconstructing or abandoning their faith. I've talked to parents who are in this place. It's easy to fall into a pattern of prayer that's all about praying that God would change their beliefs and their behaviors. Like, God, I pray that you would make them think differently. God, I pray that you would, you would have them change their lives in this area, that they would behave differently. But what if we prayed for a great, with a greater imagination of who God is and what he can do? What if when we had people who in our lives who were in that place that we prayed that the Spirit of God would give them wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him? What if we prayed that He would enlighten their hearts and our own hearts in the process? What if we prayed instead of God change their behavior that they would experience the great power that raised Jesus from the dead in their own lives for themselves on the ground? Could you imagine if we prayed like that? A reconstructing church family asks for more for ourselves, for others, and not in an entitled way of asking for more, but in a humble, searching, yearning way. Not from a posture of arrogant self-righteousness, but a posture of humble curiosity and confidence. If we assume those postures and ask for more together, I believe that God will meet us and continue building and rebuilding something remarkable in our lives. So let's do that together now. Father of glory, we pray now for ourselves, for those sitting next to us, for our friends and families, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know, really know, the hope to which you've called us. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know Like, really know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we would know, like, actually experience the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Thank you for putting all things under his feet and giving him over all things to your church, which is his body, which is us. Thank you for filling your church with your presence, the same presence that fills everything. Pray this in the name of your son Jesus by the power of his spirit. Amen.